Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Coming up on this episode of White Wine Question Time. The guy who was the foreign editor came up to me while I was sorting the post. And he said, I need you to go on a little mission. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, all right. And he said, I need you to go to Boston to find two South African neo-Nazi terrorists who are on the run. I'm like, what? Can you imagine them allowing a kid to do that now? No, not a chance, not a chance. Yeah, how did I end up in the benefits office in Ealing? And I ended up, um, I ended up on the edge of a bridge. And welcome to White Wine Question Time, the podcast that asks its guests three thought-provoking questions over three glasses of wine. And my guest this week is one of our hands-down best filmmakers and adventurers who's travelled to more than 130 countries, over 28 series of his epic travel documentaries for the BBC. He's braved bullets on the front line, he's dodged pirates, tiptoed through minefields, tracked lions on foot contracted malaria and even found himself detained for spying by the KGB. However, this real-life adventure began way before he ever stepped in front of a camera. Born and raised in Acton, West London, he fought endlessly with his father of a strict teacher and fell in with the wrong crowd as a teenager, turning to petty crime all the while struggling furiously with his mental health. He left school at 17 with just one GCSE, with no job and, frankly, a very uncertain future. However, in a deep fog of depression, the wise words of a kindly woman at the benefits office struck him. They became something of a mantra, and eventually the title of his autobiography, she told him to simply take life one step at a time. Which is exactly what he did, all the way to his first job as a postboy at the Sunday Times, where he steadily climbed the ladder, eventually finding a place on the investigations desk, and went on to write the world's first book on Al-Qaeda, an endeavour that at the time went largely unnoticed. After a decade as an investigative journalist, he traded his pen for the camera to evolve from pundit to broadcaster, creating travel documentaries that have seen him explore the world over. In amongst his adventures, in 2004, he married Anya, a camerawoman who's been on the road with them after they met at a book launch. And together they live in Devon with their 11-year-old son, Jake. But now he's about to pack his bags and once again leave them at home to head out on the road, this time with a tour, a live show called To the End of the Earth, where he shares just some of his many adventures. So let's dial him up, shall we? It's the one and only Simon Reeve. How are you, sir? 
Oh, well, that was quite an intro. I'm very well, thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm very happy to be with you. I've got my glass here. I've got you some bubbles good. in it. I don't know if you can see the bubbles. Chin, chin. Right. It's not champagne, though. I can, I can never bring myself to buy champagne. I'm too tight. So a glass of Prosecco, <laughs> raised to you, Kate. Cheers. Cheers. And cheers to the tour. I mean, second time out on the road for you. Uh, as with all things that you tend to do, uh, the last the last and the first was very successful. Um, so your own bar is rather high. Uh, well, I've been very lucky, that's for sure. Um, and I'm very... I just can't believe it. I mean, the, the, to get to do a theatre tour once is quite an extraordinary thing. To do it twice, I mean, you've got to start questioning whether the Almighty has, has been rolling the dice in your favour, really. But true. I feel very lucky. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing thing to do. It is, but it's also quite a lonely thing to do because it's just you and hundreds of people. But it is fundamentally just you. And it's up to you to make their their evening one to remember and the cost of a ticket a, a justifiable one in these times of a cost of living crisis no pressure no i think you're, that's really uh, you're re- you're absolutely right and i i i feel that not so much pressure i think responsibility so yeah i want to give some value for money and the way i do that personally is just by saying nothing's off limits basically um, I'll talk about anything. Um, it's got to be interesting, but I won't hold anything back. I won't say, oh, no, uh, I'm not going to tell them that. I'll tell them anything. Um, I'll give them anything. Um, I'll stand outside afterwards and thank them for coming. I mean, obviously, <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's only lonely that moment, really, when you're walking out, to be honest. That's, that's quite a lonely walk, I felt, when I did it before. But then as soon as you're in front of everybody... I felt that it was a, I mean, I'm sorry, it's really cringy, but it's a bit of a community, really, because it's people in the audience who enjoy travel and they like knowing about the world. So I'm, I'm in with my, um, I'm in with my people, as it were. And obviously, when you're on the road, I've got a small, I'll have a small team with me and we'll become mates by about day two. And we'll be stopping, swapping stories by day three um, of disasters we've avoided or experienced. So <laughs> there's no, I am quite conscious of loneliness, though, on the road generally. And I do feel, feel it when I'm away from my closest loved ones. And it's always one I want I want to share the journeys I do with them, but I'm not worried about that aspect of the tour. But you're absolutely right. I've, I've got to give in cost of living crisis times, but at any time, I've got to give value for money. I've got to tell them interesting stuff and make them laugh, hopefully inspire one or two just a little bit and mostly be honest. Yeah, and and, and also, I mean, like you're running through your back catalogue of greatest hits, right, of which there are so many. I mean... Your the 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 volume of your output is extraordinary. I mean, I counted twenty eight series, but I'm sure I've missed some. It might be, yeah. I I can't I can't really explain it to be honest. Um, you know the the life expectancy of a TV presenter is pretty short, really, isn't it? Yeah. Um, and yeah. I think I've been very lucky that I've been that I've kept doing what I do mainly because this is my sort of, you know, I haven't put a massive amount of thought into this, but I do think it's because the programmes haven't really been about me and my blisters. They've been about the people I'm meeting, their stories. It's, I'm still in, in, in my heart, I would still say that there's there's a journalist in me. You know, my, my break in life, as you say, I started out as a post boy and then I became a journalist, If essentially. Um, so I've still got that desire to tell stories and to know things and pass that on. And I hope that comes through in the programmes. And I think that's probably what's given me a little bit of a shelf life. If it had just been about me and what I was experiencing on the journeys I go on, I think people would have got bored quite quickly. It would have been, all right, well, we've seen that. He's done it twice now. Next. (laughs) It's it's kind of Alan Wicker meets Ross Kemp. I'll take that. I mean, there's, there's some big names. Well, because Alan Wicker was the man that brought the idea of, of seeing the world to television screens, for my generation, certainly. Yeah. And you know, I remember sitting there on a Sunday night uh, and watching him, you know, kind of float down a river somewhere otherworldly. Yeah. And it, it felt exactly that otherworldly. And then you've got people like Ross that go out and tell really important stories 
about people, the place is merely a backdrop, the situation and the people are the, are the stars of his narrative. And I think you blend both of those things. And you're right, you're never the story, but you're you're so every man, and I mean that as the as, as the as a great compliment because you're asking and thinking all the things we are at home, but then we're not the ones that are kind of you know. I don't know, trying to milk a goat <laughs> up a mountain in outer Mongolia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I like that. And I'm not trying to be something I'm not. Um, you know, we don't no. um, we don't try to uh, uh, macho me up, which would be tricky. But, you know, we don't try and hype up the situations I get into. If anything, sometimes I think we tone them down a little bit too much. You are a best-selling author and investigative journalist that was a part of the team that, as we speak today, is making headlines um, both here and in America for the exposure of of, um, the wrongdoing and the the claims that have been brought against um, Russell Brand. So, you know, you weren't mm, a little bit of a journalist. You were working with the elite and you captured their attention, dropping post to their desk. And uh, do you know what? I mean, I, I, I trained as a journalist only for a year because that's all I could afford, much like you from a very working class background. And when I got work experience on a national newspaper, I was the tea girl. You know, I made Alistair Campbell his tea and and I served it with a smile <laughs> and I bought his press cuttings up from the library. So when I read your story, I really felt that I, I really felt that I'd been where you were in so many ways. Um, talk to me about that time, because I... The leap from post room to being invited to sit at that desk, the investigations desk, uh, desk at the Sunday Times, is world class. It's it's a hot seat to land. Yeah, they'll still take um, uh, youngsters, apprentices, cub reporters, as it were, and and there's jobs for them as well. So yeah, the, I mean, you're talking about it was a couple of years that that time frame really. Um, maybe slightly less now. It felt quick, I totally grant you, but I can sort of understand how it happened. I think it would be very hard mm. now in in a culture and uh, time of health more and safety. health and safety <laughs> HR. and risk assessments. <laughs> yeah. but it's true, it's true. And, and, you know, I was really a luck. I'm no doubt I'm going to use that word a lot because of what we're talking about, but it is an absolute central aspect of my life in every way i have been lucky i have worked hard but i've had my massive share of luck and i've had my privileges as well and i'm i'm conscious of those but you know in that situation i get a job working as a postboy at the sunday times i'm literally sorting the post um andrew neil had come up with this he was the editor at the time i owe my little career to andrew neil basically um the word was that he'd sacked the previous um, guys in the post room because he hadn't been able to get through to them when he wanted to send a parcel, and he'd Reasonable. been quite cross about that, and 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 decided decided that um, for various other reasons as well that are probably slanderously libelous. Um, there was a new broom needed, and he got some new folk in, of which I was one. But I was sorting the post, but I had a carrot dangled that maybe if I worked hard. Maybe they'd give me a bit of training. And I was a I was a blank slate, really. I didn't come with a university degree. I didn't come with lots of qualifications. But that's what he I was looking for, right? Years. He was deliberately trying to bring in people that sat from uh that came from different backgrounds that weren't you know, Oxbridge or Oxford educated public school boys and privately educated young women. He wanted to bring a mix into the building to see what would happen. Yeah, it was non-graduates um, specifically. Right. And, you know, I think I, I owe him a lot for that. Um, you know, it, it was a... And it was a quite a meritocratic sort of environment there as well. You know, I was, yeah, sorting the post, but everybody was friendly and welcoming. And, you know, I would I was delivering parcels. I was... I'd start, I started offering if I could do any sort of gopher chores. Yeah, making the tea doing the photocopying um and i was just trying to do every time i did something i tried to do it um the best i could um because i could i could see or i could i could sense that a door had opened for me just a little bit and maybe that would be my shot at life really and 
um, it was a struggle. You know, I was I was really scared starting there. I was physically. Um, uh, to I was totally lacking in confidence so I was very scared when I started there and you now my mum had to come with me for the first week or something and accompany me because I was coming from quite a dark place with my mental health I'd been on the dole I'd really struggled in my in my teens I got this job I tried to do my best and people responded to that and again I was lucky I worked hard um, people who were like the chief investigative reporter there, who, yeah, was one of the, only about three journalists I'd ever heard of before starting on the paper. He gave me some jobs to do and I just kept doing them to the best I could and it just kind of snowballed. But look, you know, you can't go telling me this is a story unlike anything you've heard. You, By the time I was sort of doing that, you were the <laughs> editor, for goodness sake, weren't you, of, of Smash Hits? You've got a career trajectory that is much more vertical well, you could argue started well and it was only for about managing to climb from there on in <laughs> um no, do you know i i think I, I think so much of your story um struck a chord with me because i didn't have the graduate training i wasn't university educated um i couldn't spell when i left school right um i could i could speak i could read i could write i just wasn't very good at spelling i just hadn't had a brilliant um education but i was very determined and i really um, much like yourself, found myself walking through a door that looked like, you know, I'd stepped into Narnia. It was everything I dreamed of growing up. You know, it was journalists, it was wordsmiths. And I never wanted to leave. Right. And I felt like I'd found where I belonged. And I just had to learn and not be asked to leave. But everything I lacked in finesse, spelling, anything really, I just made up for it with enthusiasm and I think that carries you an awfully long way I, I agree I mean just turning up is a massive part of success really I would say in whatever form in life you know just just actually being the person who's there saying yes um, being there when you've said you'll be there and being keen and you know, not not bringing bitterness and baggage if possible. You know, I think that making it easy for people, I think, is important as well. You know, I totally buy why um, kids are told now, you know, be yourself. Don't let anyone um, say who you've got to be. I think, you know, that's an absolute right. Um, personally, but personally for me, I, I tried to shape myself a little bit. So I stayed true to who I was, but I did try to fit in in situations where, you know, when I was working... Um, people I was working with, they all had Oxbridge or American Ivy League university degrees. You know, I had to try and engage with them and fit in with them. There was the daughter of a cabinet minister there. You know, there was a, a lord I was working with. And there were people from very humble backgrounds as well. And you had to find the right level within that. And I think you, you do that by adjusting yourself a little bit within different social situations and professional situations. So that's what I was doing. Do you speak doing. differently to um, how you did back then, Simon? Because when I first arrived in London, you know, I was from the country. So I was mm. like, you know, I'm from Cheltenham in Gloucestershire. And so we're all a bit like that, right? Which is beautiful and lovely. But it just, you know, it was knocked out of me by, um, you know, the BBC, basically. It was like, you know, you, you can you can come in, yeah. but you must learn to speak a little, little clearer. <laughs> Nobody ever said anything to me or gave me a, a nudge or a hint. I think I just realised that, um, yeah, my estuary English is, yeah, it's kind of West London, bit bit like that, you know. Um, yeah, I had to tone it down. There's still, actually, be, between you and me, there are still words I struggle to say in scripts that even I've written for the TV programme. So I was recording... Um, a program last week and I'd put li little <laughs> and I, every, my colleagues and I we know I cannot I still cannot say little <laughs> little I can still say that little 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 so little little apples um, well, that, that, my sort of background comes out in same. that. Same. I have two obviously. words I have exactly but the same fine. two words I have I always always have to swap out nearly because I say nearly, right? Right. For almost. Okay. And I also... Okay, very good. Yeah, You've got I, found, a... I found an alternative, yeah. but the one I struggle to replace is 
calculator. And I always have to take a breath before I say it because otherwise I say calculator. Um, <laughs> so we've all got our little things, haven't we? We have. And, you know, if we can laugh about it and still make a, a, a you know, go at it, then lucky us. Simon... For the purposes of today's show, I wanted to explore three very specific areas with you via the three thought-provoking questions. I wanted to create a kind of map of your life, and I want to take in, uh, as we explore that, the people, the places, and the moments. So let's start with the moment, shall we, as we dive into question number one. Definitely. I feel like we've touched on one already, which is your fork in the road moments. You know, the ones where you stand there and you go left, right, forward, back. What have been the seminal fork in the road moments for you? And what did you learn from them? I think they're always the sort of common thread between them is is kind of do it. Because <laughs> it's always for me being a choice between actively doing something or um letting fear stop me effectively so I think generally my life the path I've taken or the journey I've taken whatever you want to call it is because at the right moments I've I've overcome a fear and and gone along with it that's really important isn't it especially with your background with mental health issues at a very young age I mean by the age of 14 you were receiving counseling um to walk into, for example, the scenario we've just discussed, you know, the Sunday Times, I, I can fully get that you had to get your mum to get you there every day. But the, the fundamental life lesson there is you felt the fear and you did it anyway. And nothing will feel that scary again once you eliminate the fear or rephrase it, turn it into excitement. Tell yourself, I'm not scared, yeah, I'm excited. I think, yeah, I think you're right that once you've done it, you, once you start taking steps... Um, the, the 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 hills start to look smaller, um, and you know the the place I'm in now, in, in as it were, you know, I've I've got here doing the job I do because experiences have given me confidence. But I started really small. <laughs> I I had to start. I started with um, just being willing and willing myself to get out of bed where I was. I was, you know, properly stuck with my head health in bed. Um, couldn't bring myself to get up and go out and get a newspaper to go through the job ads, for goodness sake. So I can I can still sense that person within me and I can still trace my, my life back to those moments where, yeah, I am actually quite proud of the fact that I have said yes at those times, even when I've been scared. For a seminal one, I think it's got to be... It's got to be meeting my, my wife, actually... Um, you know, I, of course, there's been professional moments, but um, in terms of importance and joy and life pivoting and and new direction and everything wonderful, is is that moment of meeting my wife and being in. So we met in a in a fancy party. You were at a book launch, weren't and you? And I saw her across. It was a book launch. Thank you for knowing. Yeah, it wasn't my book. But it was um, the book launch of uh, Coma by Alex Garland, who wrote um, The Beach That's... as well. So, you know, they had some money for some some fancy drinks as well. It wasn't like your traditional... There was really snacks crap and everything, I bet. Like, snacks, exactly. <laughs> Bubbles. And um, so I saw this, this woman across the room and, you know, proper fancy at first sight. And, and thank goodness... Um, I, I just held her gaze as I walked past just a, a moment acceptably too long and she saw me and our eyes locked and slight slight click in that moment. And I was like, oh my God, I thought she was way out of my league. And I, I hung around and I was with a couple of mates, uh, a couple of friends. It's not like we were lads then, we were a bit older. And um, oh, my friend Ben was getting a bit, cross with me for not going to talk to her and he may have if he didn't elbow if he didn't shove me then he probably elbowed me but I still took the final steps and started talking to her and that that moment that is absolutely key to my everything now so in that moment words had to be uttered 
um, confidence had to be emitted. You know, you have to put the, sh- the little bit of the show on and 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 woo. You know, chat, flirt, and thank goodness. Oh my god! What did you yeah, say to her? So it's a straight. I have no. I have no. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't too corny. I don't think. Um, I felt confident from the out because it wasn't. It was something about where we were, or it was just totally honest. I think. Um, look, I have to come and talk to you. Um, I want to. My friend Ben is pointing out. If I don't, I'll regret it. It was something like that. Oh. So it was a bit, it's a bit self-deprecating. I think. I hope. Um, anyway, we 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 went for a drink and and everything that follows. You know. Tell me about Anya. What made her still such a huge part of your heart? Well, it's not. What did why? How did she steal a bit of my heart? I mean that that's not hard, really. You know, she's um, she's a much better human being, I think, than I am. You know, I think it's always good advice to try and find somebody who is nicer than <laughs> you. <laughs> and and she is, but quite a lot more as well. You know, not just nicer, but um. Uh, brighter, sharper, um, more. You know, she's a selfless, um, more wonderful human being. She deserves to be breathing this planet's oxygen more than I do. Oh. Um, she's much more grounded. She doesn't have an ego that she brings to things, um, like almost all of us. In truth, um, she's generally more right than I am. So. We have a sort of oh, I can't remember if I if I've said this before or not, but I'll fess up anyway. I have a sort of seventy thirty or sixty forty um, rule in in our relationship where basically I know she's more likely to be right sixty. It's like she'll be right sixty percent and I'll be right forty percent. Sometimes seventy thirty in her favour. Basically, she's usually right, but sometimes, sometimes I am. So that's my rationale for resolving our disputes and, and, you know, arguments. But essentially, I'll ask her advice on absolutely everything because I value her opinion more than mine. And, you know, to be to be honest as well, I really fancy her still. That's so nice. You respect her and you fancy her. Win win. That's great. Yeah. A win, and win. you've managed exactly. to work together and still stay married. Well done, you two. Not just work, even, which is amazing, but travel. Yeah. You know, travel is part Sometimes of Sometimes like, just a car journey is a divorce in the making, isn't it? <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it? it? Quite a small team as well. So we, I didn't meet her through work, as I say, um, but when I met her, um, uh, she said, yeah, I used to work in wildlife documentaries. She'd been working as a, a camera woman and she'd got a bit depressed um, with wildlife documentaries because it's not all blue chip David Attenborough. Some of it is, you know, gluing, and, uh, gluing a stick insect to a branch in a garage in Croydon. You know, there's lots of fakery in it. And she was really fed up with, with being asked to work on things like that. And so she'd sort of put that to one side. And anyway, so I was able to persuade her first and then convince um uh people on the team that she could work on the projects and you know i'm a bit surprised now but thank god they went for it she was rational and calm and she had to do um she did some hostile environment training where she was the only person on the course who wasn't shot in the head by the instructors when they were kidnapped. So they knew, you know, she could handle herself in tricky situations. She spoke she spoke several languages. She knew Arabic. She'd lived in Egypt. She'd, she'd been around in a good sense. Um, but, yeah, they let us work together. And that's a real test of a relationship. We crossed the Sahara, for goodness sake. And she was the perhaps just about the toughest member of the team. So absolute keeper. So hang on a minute, right? Hostile training, yeah. Let's just explain to the listener what that is because I've had to do it um, in my capacity as a BBC travel presenter and I used to present the holiday programme, not a patch on the kind of territories that you've explored, all the narratives. That hostile training frightens the bejesus out of grown men and women all day, every day. And you're telling me that your wife just aced it and walked out 
as the only one that wasn't shot in the head. Yes, wow, I am. she's hardcore. And she and and I think she might have persuaded a couple of people on her them to release a couple of people on her team as well. I mean, it was like this is a person you really want to be travelling with. So yeah, the hostile environment training. Uh, it's not just media, but um, uh, charities, aid agencies. They send their they send their people on. Um, to do training courses, which basically mean if there's if something awful happens, an insurance company comes knocking, or heaven forbid, an inquest. And I'm not being flippant about it, but you know though that organisation needs to be able to say we didn't just send a total muppet <laughs> into that conflict zone. We gave them a bit of training, we put them through some tricky situations, and they seemed okay. Yeah. Basically, so yeah, you go to somewhere like a army training centre, and former special forces guys. Um, either mock interrogate you they kidnap you and put a bag over your head you get you get battlefield medicine training um it's it's pretty realistic in truth oh, really people is. take it seriously um uh, and it's brilliant to do i don't know if you sort of enjoyed it as well afterwards but i kind of yeah afterwards maybe afterwards, but in yes. it no because i was just terrified of failing and not getting to carry you know what i wanted to do was carry on the job and I just thought, please don't, yeah. please don't cut off my access to the world by saying that I'm a sniveling yeah, wreck. Don't fail me. <laughs> yeah. Don't take away my passport. Do you know what's interesting? I think um, I've got this right. Um, Kate Silverton has been a guest on the show in the past. And when she went off mm. to do her hostile training, she ended up marrying the instructor. <laughs> yes, she did. I mean, he, I, I've, I've met him a few times and met Kate. And I might have even been there when they... When they met, I can't remember. No. I might have been on the same course, but yeah, I mean, he, he's a, he's a good-looking bloke and and roughy tufty and capable. I mean, you could see why he was, uh, like, why they yeah, were both the, drawn. I mean, the, the stuff that they're preparing you for. Very few of us will ever realise those situations. You actually did. Were there fork in the road moments where you saw your life flash before your eyes? I mean, I know that you have had a lot of I almost died moments from childhood onwards. Mm. <laughs> um, <laughs> but but were there moments like that that kind of made you look left, right and think, hang on a minute, I need to rethink everything from here? Um, yeah, maybe not. Certainly question. I've certainly questioned situations after I've come through them and thought... Um, what what am I doing? Is this is this right? Is this justified? Um, you know, being in. I mean, you say fork in the road, um, and that makes me immediately think of a, a literally of a fork in the road of a of crossroads. Anyway, yeah, well, it is, um, it is, isn't it? Because yeah, if, sometimes if, if, life is something that happens whilst we're busy planning el elsewhere. You know, and sometimes it's the stuff that takes yeah. you off path. Yeah. Well, this, the, I mean, I can think of a very specific situation where I'm questioning everything. I was in Mogadishu in Somalia. Um, this was a good few years ago. But yeah, oh, it does, it does make me sweat a little bit remembering it. It was um, a very difficult time there. There was nobody really in charge. There were warlords running everything. There was no real government. And we were filming there and trying to show that it was a chaotic, troubled place. And I was going a, a little bit mad at the time and I was driving through the city with 12 heavily armed local mercenaries and there was a bloke on the top of on the back of our pickup truck with a manning an anti-aircraft gun and everyone around me had Kalashnikovs and we were playing Mr Brightside by the Killers really loudly on the car stereo and and then we suddenly came out to this crossroads the fork in the road um in a bombed out part of the city and another gang arrived there at the same time and it was a very very dramatic tense immediate situation where they swung their guns onto us and by that i mean an anti-aircraft gun which is a it's a big weapon and it's pointing directly at the vehicle directly at me and i'm on that side of the the truck as well and that's their weapon was, that's big enough a, to take a plane out of the sky, right? It's exactly, yeah. I mean, even if a bullet from that passes near you, it can shred your arm, even if it hasn't hit you. So it's a, it's a, a for, an obscene, a ferocious weapon in the situation, and it was, it was utterly terrifying. Uh, there was nothing, there was nothing I could do, and I had 
a few seconds where I thought, you know, everything goes through your head about shall I, shall I do this? Shall I try that? What about this? Anything I did, instant um, conclusion was that it would most likely make the situation worse. Um, you know, they're not looking for somebody to get out and say, guys, guys, let's just talk. <laughs> no, this is this is not that situation. You know, this is not... Um, this is not a movie scene situation. This is this is people who are also on drugs. In truth, as well, all the the local guys were chewing a sort of oh, it was God, it was it was very, very, very upsettingly, terrifyingly, scarily um, uh, shocking as well, because it was that reminder that it can spin. Like that. Like that, life can in so many different ways. This is just a dramatic way of it happening. But, you know, we all have those moments where whether you're driving down a motorway and you realise, oh, goodness, a car just comes in front of you if it had taken you out. It's, it's, life is scary. But that was a very violently scary moment. And thank God they shouted at each other for a bit and the temperature calmed down enough for the other guys to go first and then we followed and that was that was a moment i i will not ever i won't ever forget what about um the moment that kind of provided a gateway into this world for you the moment that uh, you stopped delivering the post and you were sent out to collect the story um the first assignment as a journalist was that a big moment yes Yes, there was a, I had a, a sort of big break moment. Um, but I mean, even after I'd had my big break, what was slightly weird is that I was still sorting the post and I was still, um, you know, running errands for people. And even when I was, you know, I was 20, I was 21, I was sitting on the news desk at the Sunday Times and I was working on the night news de desk. I was sort of like the deputy night news editor in all but name basically and still sometimes people would come up to me and say can you photocopy these cuttings and I would be saying I'm really sorry I'm just working re-editing the, the the splash for the front page or something ludicrous like that so yeah, I had these bizarre situations but I did have a big break and the big break um it's a slightly convoluted story and it was utterly surreal but um, the guy who was the foreign editor came up to me while I was sorting the post. And he said, I need you to go on a little mission. And I was like, oh, yeah, OK, all right. And he said, um, you know, I need you to I need you to go to Boston to find two South African neo-Nazi terrorists who are on the run. I'm like, what? <laughs> and he's That's like, a mission. I've got to go and have a meeting. You know, I'm, I'm, I'll be out in the meeting in half an hour get stuff ready and get ready to go. I was like, what on earth? And I'd never been on a plane, so I was totally panicking. Boston? Oh, my goodness. Uh, you know, I didn't even have a passport. Um, I didn't know what he was talking about. I'm running around saying to people, he wants me to go do this. And I went to see this guy who was my... He'd become my mentor, really. And I said, he wants me to go to, to find these two terrorists in Boston, for goodness sake. And he says, calm down. For a start, it's Boston in Lincolnshire. <laughs> and we're sending people to four addresses where we think these guys are. So chances are, you know, nothing's going to happen. Anyway, I, I get the telephone number of where of where we believe them to be and I think I had an address and uh, I go to King's Cross I think and I ring them from the station not expecting anyone to answer there's two South African neo-Nazi terrorists for goodness sake and we knew they were somewhere and we had these sort of four addresses and leads they might be anyway they answer almost immediately with one ring nobody says anything there's an answer on the and just i can hear sort of sense somebody's down the line i'm on the pay phone <laughs> at king's cross you know feeding in pre-mobile yeah oh man this is this is like the dark ages <laughs> and um i say you know i say this is this is simon reeve i'm calling from the sunday times newspaper of london <laughs> and, the times of and london i know i know and I mean, it's hideous, but somehow they agreed to speak to me, then meet me. I went up there, I found them, I talked to them. Um, I was a kid. 
for goodness sake. I was such a kid. I went into Boston Town Centre in Lincolnshire to send my mum a postcard saying, I'm out of London, mum. And... <laughs> Says the man that's subsequently Honestly, been to 130 imagine? countries. Brilliant. I know, but can you imagine <laughs> them allowing a kid to do that now? No, not no, a chance. It wouldn't chance. happen now, and it couldn't happen now because of probably quite intelligent infrastructure that's been in, in, uh, yeah, put in place. Like help the law, yeah. yes. <laughs> um, and, you know, governance and health and safety and people's wellbeing. I get all of that. But what an extraordinary place to find yourself. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Let's continue with exploring places, if you don't mind. Seeing as you've touched on Boston, all right. Let's let's jump to places. Can you take me to the benefits office in West London, where a lady gave you the most singular piece of advice that ended up being almost like your lightsaber that got you through the next tricky phases of of, your, of, of the life that you are now talking about into a life that is a, a landed opportunity, a land of opportunity, rather. Oh, goodness. So, yeah, how did I end up in the benefits office in Ealing? Uh, you know, I flunked out of school, basically. And uh, I walked out of school during the exams, out of the exam hall. And I, I never went back. I, I was... It wasn't because I was angry or hated it. It was because I was terrified and I had a panic attack mm. and I kept having panic attacks and I couldn't I couldn't get out of bed. I mean, I was in a real, really terrible state. And now that was the darkest period of my life, really. And I couldn't see any sort of future for myself. I didn't think um, I had anything to offer life and I didn't feel life had anything to offer me. And I ended up, um, I ended up on the edge of a bridge, and you know I I've talked about this openly before, but it's still I still feel a very a, a strong connection with that kid and that person, so it still upsets me to think about it. I feel sorry for that kid, <laughs> and I feel sorry for all of the kids who go through similar situations mm. now because teens are a really bloody difficult yeah. time. And I fell through the cracks. Uh, you know, I'd had some, I'd had counselling from actually even, I think it was 13 when I first started having counselling on the NHS back then even. Um, I was in quite a difficult headspace and it got worse and worse. I ended up on the edge of a bridge. I can't claim there was a deep reason why I stepped back, literally, but I did, thank God. Yeah. And... 
and I went home and I'd cry myself to sleep and I wouldn't get out of bed and I was going nowhere and it was all looking really pretty crappy. And my brother said to me that, you know, I had to go and sign on. Um, and he was right, you know, and, and I had no money. So in truth, I was really going. So I had a few quid. And I remember I couldn't even get unemployment benefit because I was too young. I could get income support at the time. And I went to sign on. I didn't know any of this, but I went to sign on. And fate, you know, it just stepped in and it gifted me a woman in the benefits office who was um, very warm and very human and just emitted and exuded a, um, if not love, then care. Mm. And... I sat opposite her and I just said, um, you know, I just, I don't know what to do with my life. And for a moment, she was a little bit like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then very quickly, she was engaged in what I was saying. And I said, you know, kids then, kids now, we're told, um, you know, you can be anything in life. You just have to dream big. You just have to have a five-year plan. All of this stuff that is often... You know, a load of tosh if you're in a difficult space with your health and and she said don't think too far ahead try and try and think just about what you're doing now take things slowly take them step by step and this was whoa it was such brilliant advice for me at that moment mm. it was what I needed and I was receptive and it it got me and I heard it I listened um, and I took it as to understand, you know, don't don't think of climbing the hill. Don't look at the top of the hill or the mountain, whatever analogy you want, or um, just try and break things down into smaller components. So for me, you know, going to get a job was a terrifying prospect, but going to the shop to get a newspaper I could just about manage that. I'd get the newspaper. Right, now going through the ads. Yep. Circling them, writing off, breaking it down into those elements. That made that made the the, the it made it more possible. So I could be more than the sum of my parts, really. But yeah, then going for job um interviews. That was really, really, you know, scary. That's me. I wasn't eating for a day beforehand. I was still retching. Um, I was in a really bad state, but I, I did it, you know, and My God, I got the, knocked back a couple of times and carried on. The resilience that you display in those moments is remarkable. Um, it's strength, resilience, call it what you like, uh, especially at a time when you have probably the lowest of self-esteem, a real, you know, a very mm. sense of low self-worth. And yet a job op a job interview is very much about selling yourself. It's the last thing in the world you feel equipped to do. And yet you still pushed yourself yeah. forward to do that. Um, and you took it bit by bit, step by step. It wasn't, you've got to go and apply for a job tomorrow. It's like, you know what, tomorrow I'm just going to get out of bed. I'm going to go and buy a paper and look at what jobs are available. That's all I'm going to do. Then yeah. I'm taking it, like you say, bit by bit, step by step, day by day. Yeah, and, and you know, I didn't, I wasn't going for jobs really in truth where I needed to sell myself. I was going for jobs where I just needed to look um, like I wouldn't still steal anything from the shop or the van <laughs> um which was fine you know that was my that was what I was I, I felt I could do and but even then I couldn't I couldn't get a job so yeah I, I really feel for other kids like me you know I think we have such a focus in this country on university mm. it's all bloody university this university that and there's way too much focus as a society really on university it totally ignores those who want to get a trade or want to go out and, and work um you know don't have that career that clear career path so yeah i mean i think um for me things came right in the end if i'd gone to university if I'd carried the baggage of having a degree, I would probably never been such a, a willing gopher on the bottom rung of the ladder at the newspaper. And I, I honestly don't think I would be where I am today. Extraordinary. 
It's, it is. I, I, I love your story and I love the, the fact that so many times um, the next phase of your story that's about to unfold, you're kind of frozen in fear. And yet you just managed to thaw your way through it. Um, and it's really important for anybody that's listening that does struggle with their mental health or low self-worth or anxiety, as so many of us have and do, um, that sometimes you have just got to feel the fear and do it anyway. Yeah, I, I think... Yeah, I think if you, I mean, I'm not one to, I've got no right to offer advice, but I've got no less right than anyone else, I guess. And for me, that breaking it down was what made it it possible. And, you know, I think as soon as you start getting up and getting out and you, you actually physically, emotionally, mentally put one foot in front of the other, that momentum that starts to start providing answers. I mean, it, it's shown, um, study after study has shown, if you can do it in nature, even better. But, you know, even for me, walking around in Acton in West London, you know, I'm still out there. I'm still moving. My blood is flowing as a result. I'm seeing things. I'm smelling the world. The sun is on my skin that is a positive benefit. So if there's nothing else you can do, and I understand it, I have been there. For goodness sake, go for a walk, if nothing advice. else. Can we jump from the lady in the benefits office to um, somebody that, that handed you an extraordinary opportunity, um, but is one of the world's leading villains? Uh, Osama bin Laden. <laughs> wow, yeah. Yeah, so... In 1993, <laughs> in 1993, <laughs> there was an attack on the World Trade Center. Now, everybody at this point will be going, no, you've got the dates wrong. And we haven't. You've got you the haven't. Year wrong, there Simon. was yeah. an original attack that preceded 9-11, right? Exactly. So, so many years before the events of 9-11, when the towers fell, there was an attack, an attempt to topple them. And it was an enormous terrorist attack at the time. It caused more domestic casualties in America than any event since the Second World, since since the Civil War, no less. And still, it faded from public consciousness quite quickly. The newspapers moved on. The guys involved, some of them were arrested. They went to jail. People, you know, the news cycle, as it were, moves on. But I started researching that attack the same day it happened and the more I found out about it the more fascinating and important I thought it was and I thought the background of the people who were responsible for the attack was fascinating I thought what they did how they did it what was it about it. them and how they operated that captured your attention and can I just check in on what what age you were at this point because um as I recall you were still 20 something right I was I was 20. 20. I was 20 years old when this happened. Yeah, so um just still 20 um and what fascinated me I suppose in some ways was the impact of the attack, the horrific power that a small number of people who are committed to extreme violence the their what they can what they can the the carnage they can inflict the mentality which was very alien to um mine it, it's they seem to be very much the other and yet at the same time within that the group responsible there was a guy who was an utter muppet who went back to try and claim a refund on the rental van they'd used in this truck bombing of course the entire fbi were there waiting for him and and genius as well. Another guy was one of the most technically proficient terrorist masterminds that's gone against the, the West, in inverted commas. He's a guy, he's in prison now. He was um, uh, connected to Osama bin Laden and uh, training camps in Afghanistan. He... Um, he developed a formula for liquid nitroglycerin bombs. He's the reason more than anything, this guy whose name was Ramzi Youssef, mm. he's the reason more than anything why you still really can't take water onto a plane because he developed this 
undetectable bomb that could be carried onto onto planes as a as a water liquid. Um, he tried to kill the Pope, um, President Clinton, Benazir Bhutto, the Prime Minister of Pakistan. He came up with a plot to simultaneously destroy twelve airliners over the Pacific. Um, he studied at West Glamorgan Institute in Wales no. and he had business cards made up with international terrorists written on them. I mean, he was weird. And so I was fascinated by all of that and everything I was finding out. And the more research I did, the more I naively, arrogantly thought, overconfidently thought perhaps there's a book in this. I should write a book. This is the only thing that warrant that, that can do justice to the scale of what's going on here. You must have been quite and frustrated as well at the time because more column inches weren't given to that story over here domestically. Uh, this, you know, we we should all know about this guy and we don't. And you probably felt very frustrated, I would imagine, and wanted to pour this incredible detail into a book to tell the story that we should all be alive and alert to this organisation that had the ambition and the ability to wreak devastation. Yeah, and I think that became more of a feeling as years, several years ticked by. And then by 1995, 96, you know, I was, I'd been working, doing the research for a couple of years. And, you know, the name of Osama bin Laden was being bandied around then. And he became much more of a figure. And people who were my sort of contacts in intelligence agencies, but also in militant groups were saying, you know, this guy wants to wage war. And so it became more of a... Um, I had more of a desire to, yeah, alert people, if you like, um, make people more aware of what was going on. And, you know, I felt very frustrated when this book I'd been researching eventually came out. It came out in 1998, so a few years before 9-11. And the conclusion of it was there was this group and they were going to launch apocalyptic attacks. And, of course, nobody listened, nobody read it, nobody took any notice. And I went off and worked on other projects and wrote other depressing books about terrorism. And then 9-11 happened. And, you know, I'd written the only book in the world about the group responsible. So, of course, I was pushed onto TV to talk about it. There were satellite trucks parked up outside my little flat by the end of the day. You know, I was... I was um, there was rolling news 24 hours obviously on the BBC on all the channels which was still relatively new as a phenomenon anything. right in terms of telling a global story I think rolling yeah. news and 9-11 um it, it was it was a meeting of of, of, a, of an enormous story and the ability to, to just keep people constantly informed in a way that we probably never had needed it before maybe with the exception of so what we, what, what year are we in now 97 did you say well, the, no, the book came out in 98 and then 2001, yeah, yeah, obviously, 98. was the So I think yeah. by 97, the first time we'd seen that sort of rolling news um, really find its its might was with the death of Diana. Um, and we'd seen... Yes, I think that's true. ...seen then that, I mean, actually, the storytelling is, is always on. And then suddenly mm. they needed somebody that could be always on, always informed, an authority that could break this mm. down step by step to a world that was sat there watching these towers fall in disbelief. And that man was you. Yeah. That was the birth of your broadcast career. Yeah, it was. It was. It's true. I'd done a little bit of TV before just being interviewed about depressing stuff, but um, no, nothing like that. I mean, obviously, um, you know, I, I was going on Good Morning America, for goodness sake, and, you know, some of the biggest news and and studio shows in the world because that's what people wanted they needed to know about what was going on um and that's the beginning of my my yeah as you say my telly career so I was doing that and I was in my late 20s then I had my own hair and teeth and I'd written a book about all of this and so pretty soon broadcasters started saying um you know what about not just sitting on a sofa in a news studio but what about actually making TV programs, presenting TV programs. And it's always been a bit of a thing for me to say yes and give things a whirl. And I'm not being... In truth, it does come down to that. It comes to it down, well, all right, yeah. I mean, that sounds interesting. What, what are you saying? What are you thinking? Let's 
chat it through. I have had I have said yes in life. I think it is true a lot more than I've said no. Um, generally, I'll give things a go, and <laughs> I hope that doesn't sound too suspicious or dodgy. But try, for goodness' sake. Yeah. Um, What's the worst that can motto. happen? I mean, obviously, it depends on what you're trying. <laughs> yeah. So we've touched on moments. We've touched on some of the people that have been seminal in kind of forming this map of your life. Let's finish off with places. The places that will always be dear in your heart. Hmm. I think I realise more than ever now, you know, that at my heart, I'm still a bloke from Acton in West London, which is, you know, it's not very fancy. It's not very, it's not very uh, known. It's not, it's not a famous hangout of anyone or anything. But yeah, I, I've, I think we ha- I feel I have to embrace my roots, even if um i live elsewhere so dear to my heart is still where i'm from um i'm still a londoner at my in my core not you know the london of privilege but just a very normal ordinary london which was community and school and the most multicultural church and probably in the world when i was growing up still those um acton hill for anyone wondering that's still part of my story and and background uh where else i live in devon now that is very dear to me after we've done the whole middle-aged middle-class thing of moving to the countryside and we're here proper our lad's been through the local school um we we love it here uh and i feel like i'm giving him proper roots i think we've there's a lot of people in in a, a lot of people living lives now where they could be from anywhere rather than somewhere and I wanted my, my lad Jake to be to feel like he belonged somewhere and I hope he does where else around the planet you know I feel yeah of course I'm much more connected to strange wonderful parts of the world because I've had this incredibly privileged job if you can call it that and I've had real encounters with people in those places and I've sweated occasionally bled once or twice nearly died certainly had emotional experiences in them so of course I feel very connected to Bangladesh to Madagascar to Patagonia to strange and wonderful places around the world but it's almost always as you know you would guess I think it's almost always to the people in those places to the interactions I've had with um folk there some of whom i will never see again and some of whom i'm able to stay in contact with but those human moments where you share laughter experience story food whatever it is those are still really really important in life today i think that's still something wonderful about travel that it can still gift and give that we mustn't forget that or lose that um so those are some of my my special favourite places. Planet Earth in its broadest wonderful sense and more than anything, the human beings who live on it. You know, ultimately, I really love... <laughs> I really love us, you know. I've seen a lot of terrible things around the planet. I, it's true, I have, but I've seen far more wonder and love and beauty and met people who are just inspiringly magnificent and i love us i really do i love people i think you know we think of ourselves as 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 being different from nature but we're not we're another creature on planet earth but we are the finest most wonderful creature that's ever existed and we need that reminder that's as a well. beautiful way to end a fascinating conversation thank you so much and and i hope oh. that people have heard this and will go back and explore your catalogue of work and then start booking some places that live beyond brochures because i think once you do that you feed your mind you broaden your horizons it's been my greatest education travel uh, my greatest job in the world was traveling for the bbc um and it, and it changed everything. It changed the way I feel. It changed the way I view things. It changed my ambitions. And if, if you can inspire that in other people through your work, which you do, then my goodness, what a gift. 
<laughs> well, thank you very much indeed. I've loved chatting. I've loved our conversation. I've drunk my large glass of Prosecco. Good man. And I'll have a, a lovely, jolly afternoon as a result. Oh, don't go doing school run now, will you? <laughs> Definitely not, no. Or operating large power tools. Maybe just a small drill. If that's captivated you, go and see him live. Simon Reeve is on tour across October and November 2023, up and down the UK. Tickets are available and on sale now. And for more episodes with guests who've shared their own alternative adventures with us, you can find episodes with Craig Doyle in our back catalogue, who takes us to Belize, where he gets drunk with Cameron Diaz. Hannah Waddingham, who takes us to Hollywood via Richmond and Ted Lasso. Alistair Campbell, who's in a French hospital, bickering with his daughter Grace. The hairy bikers, who were almost arrested, crossing borders and the Reverend Richard Coles who was well frankly off his head in Ibiza on a dance floor that's all in our back catalogue as is oh the brilliant Christopher Biggins who recounts his life on the pot trail in California where he had a whitey with Pat Butcher from EastEnders yes search it up now I'll be back on Tuesday with something from the cellar until then thanks so much for your company White Wine Question Time is a Stack production and part of the ACAST Creator Network. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.